Thanks, Livy. Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Mark's. Um, so great. I love this part of God's Word. I love working through the Word of God because we come to passages that are tricky that we wouldn't necessarily think about and that kind of step out of the blue and amaze us. And it's my hope and prayer tonight that, that God's Word by His Spirit might be changing us all to think about how we live in the world. So let's ask Him to do that, hey? Let's pray and ask God by His Spirit to work through His Word in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks so much that you've brought us together tonight. Uh, thank you for um, the reality that you've given us your Word and that as we come to it, that you promise to speak by your Spirit and through this Word. We ask that you'd help us to see you as you really are, to think about life and to look to Jesus in a way that will change how we live. Strengthen us, challenge us, comfort us and propel us into the world we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to ask tonight, what does the good life look like? What does the good life look like? seems to me that the whole world is chasing the good life. Uh, we're running after getting the best life we can get. And who doesn't want a life that looks good, that feels good, that smells good and tastes good, right? That's what we want in life, goodness. It seems, though, as that's what all humanity is after. That there must be some sense in which, kind of stitched into the very fabric of who we are, we seek what is good. Problem is, we don't really know what good is. I did a bit of research this week, and apparently the Sustainable Business Council of New Zealand claim that we've shifted in what our understanding of the good life is. They've done some research, and they, they, they say on this slide, which is on their website, uh, basically there was the good life 1.0. That's what we used to think what the good life was, where we would chase after a world that's all about the bigger and better and faster and more. We need more of everything. We need bigger of everything. But apparently they're putting forward that as they've done some research lately, we're moving towards the good life 2.0. Sounds better, doesn't it? It's like an upgrade. And the good life 2.0 is really thinking about how to live better in the world, not necessarily with more, but celebrating 16 key moments, 16 key moments in life. Let me just tell you what these key moments are that they think gives the good life 2.0. They're on the screen. I'll read them out. Far now united. Basically, our families together uh, is a great thing that we want and gives us a good life. Achieving our goals is another moment. As you achieve your goals, you, you experience the good life. A full table, you know, having people in your home and celebrating a meal together. Being together, playful moments with partners and kids and family. Um, connecting with your community is an important moment to, to bring on the good life. Being with friends, celebrating our children, being active, exploring new places, maintaining our homes, the DIY attitude is core to the good life, apparently. Loving our pets, uh, appreciating nature, nourishing my household, sharing great moments with those around us. Creating things and growing, taking a break and me time. Apparently, according to the Sustainable Business Council of New Zealand, those 16 moments of life, when you have more and more of those, bring about the good life 2.0. As we get to this section of 1 Peter that uh, Livy just read for us, we have Peter quoting someone else on what the good life is. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, i.e. the good life, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. 
Now here, Peter is quoting to us part of Psalm 34, part of what King David was saying. He's one of the best characters in the Bible, the one who was after God's own heart, or God chose him and he was in God's heart. But in a sense, these words, they don't sound that dissimilar to the 16 key moments of life. Listen to how Peter summarized them a little bit earlier in 1 Peter 3 verse 8, the start of our passage tonight. Finally, he said, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so you may inherit a blessing. There's a sense when you, when you look at those words, when you hear those words, you can go, you know what, Christianity doesn't seem that much different from the world around us, than what we can get from the world ourselves about what the good life is. I mean, isn't that just saying, be kind? And we hear that all the time, right? That's what we've got to do. The good life is found in us being kind. Well, the Scriptures do call us to be kind, but for a very different reason than the world around us. So the obvious thing that's missing from those 16 moments in life, in Good Life 2.0, was any connection with the one who defines what good is, or any reference to how we work out what good is. They're an arbitrary set of guidelines. They could be just pooled ignorance. I mean, we could all have a vote and choose what the good life is, then hire an ad agency and kind of sell that to the world and see society bite the hook. As long as it makes some sort of sense, then people will go along with it, won't they? I mean, that's what Nazi Germany was, wasn't it? People taking up a vision of the good life that was very different from others, but it was put forward to go, yes, this is what we ought to seek. Now, we're built to live the good life, but it seems as a society, we're walking around in the dark, trying to feel out what that is, trying what is good, what feels good to me. Whereas what we have in the Bible is a relationship with the one who defines what is good. A relationship with the one who defines what is good, who is good. See, verse 9 gives us what the 16 moments can't, the reason why we're to live this way. Look at this, 1 Peter 3 verse 9. Do these things since you were called for this, so you may inherit a blessing. The reason the world says be kind, live the good life 2.0, is because that's all we have. We need to milk this life for as much as we can here and now. We need to experiment to find out, what can I do? How can I get the most good according to me? But one of the great joys of God's Word is He doesn't leave us on our own to define what is good. He shows us Himself, the one who made us, gives us the manufacturer's recommended way of living, what the good life is, how to enjoy the world that He has made the best way. And the good life here in 1 Peter... It's not an attempt to be good enough for God. It's not an attempt to gain the best life, but a response to the life we've been given. It's in response that we live the good life. Response to life beyond death, to life more than here and now. When I first learnt to drive a car, I learnt to drive a manual car. Got a show of hands, who, who, who learnt on a manual? A show of hands? Yeah, good work. So one of the great things that a manual has is is a clutch and a gearbox that you actually have to put cars in gears. And I remember the the first time that I actually got the car into first gear, took my foot off the clutch, and and I didn't go down the road like a a clown on a pogo stick. Because if you get it wrong, it's like... That's what it's like. If that's how you're driving a manual still, come chat with me. 
we can talk later and work out how to get that a little smooth. But I remember that the, the time I, I worked it out, finally did this smooth takeoff, and I'm like, yes! I'm in first, I'm driving, I'm steering, I'm going faster than I could run, I'm going further than I could run. This is life. I'm kind of like, this is amazing. Uh, but imagine if I only got that far. Imagine if no one told me that, you know what, there's second gear. Imagine if I drove my whole life like, like the nana in first. Just, that's it, that's all that there is. And I tried to kind of get the car to go, why is everyone else going so fast? I'm going I'm to floor it in first. I'm like, everywhere, just in first gear. That's what happens, by the way, if you leave it in first. If you're an automatic driver, you can experience this by putting it down into L or low or one, just seeing how far you go for a while. So the world around us has gone, look at what this is life, this is driving, I love it. The world around us is trying to milk as much out of this life as we can, but it does not realize that there are more gears than first. There is more to this life than the here and now. And as Peter speaks and as God speaks into our world, it's like God has said to those who trust in Him, to those He's chosen, He's reached down into our world, put His foot on the clutch and gone, second. And suddenly we've gone, whoa, there is so much more life after death. And as if they were years, He's gone third and fourth and fifth and sixth and 472 billionth year. I mean, that's a lot of gears in life, but that's how big eternity is. There's so much more, but the world around us is so stuck on getting as much out of here and now as we can, and it's like ringing out first gear forever. Here, the God who made us is saying, there is more to this life than getting everything you think you need out of it here and now, because there is more to come. If you remember back to 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He's given us new birth into second year, into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is gear infinity. Bible's claim is that there is life after death. There is more than the here and now. And to live in this world as though this is all there is, is like driving a car in first gear and never getting out. Peter says in verse 9, we are to live this way, the good life, generous and kind and gentle. Not in order to gain life. Not in order to get in favor with God so He might reach down and change gears for us. But because He's already done it. Because we've been called to it already, because it's been given to us already. He describes our future as an inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. For those of us who trust Jesus, you trust Jesus because God has chosen you and brought you to himself. And said, this is your future. And that allows us to live in this world like, well, we don't need to squeeze every moment out for our pleasure right now. We don't have to walk around in the dark trying to feel what is the good life. The good life is found in living that there is more to come. The good life is a response to what we've already been given, not a means to achieve it. Knowing there's more means we don't need to take as much as we can here and now. We can be sympathetic to those around us because we've been shown sympathy. We can love others because we've been shown love. We can be compassionate and humble not demanding what we deserve, but looking to Jesus, who's the compassionate and humble one, who gave up what He deserved. And He didn't give us what we deserved, He gave us His life so that we could have His. Do you see how freeing it is? See, none of us on our own can actually live the good life. 
None of us, this side of Jesus' return, can perfectly live as we should. But Peter wants to show us there is one who did do that. There is one good life. And that's the second point in our outline. The one good life. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What Peter is saying is there was one who lived the perfect life. There is one, and his name is Jesus. He is the one good life, Jesus. He's the perfect example of what good life is, but he's way more than that. He lived the perfectly good life himself and then offered that to us. He offered to switch places, to take our place so that he would take the rap for what we had done wrong, for the times we'd rejected God, for the times we hadn't lived rightly towards the true and living God. He took the penalty for those in our place and offered us his life. I want to try and explain this. It's a great verse. It's the heart of the gospel. I want to try and explain it in a visual way. So I've asked our four volunteers to come down the front. There's no magic involved. If you volunteers could come down, that would be great. Give them a round of applause. Woo! Keep clapping them in. Come on, come on. Over here, over here. Some have an idea what's happening. Some have none. Uh, I've got a little... All right, so I want you to imagine for a moment these four volunteers. What I need, um, uh, Ezra, come with me. I want you to stand over here by the stranger's son. And I want you, uh, you're going to be God the Father. I want you to look this way. Could have made him Jesus, but everyone would have gone, is he? I don't know. Um, then, uh, where, where we go? I'll take you to come with me for a second. Uh, Mark, I'd love you to stand by citizen's sign way down here. Okay, Mark, you're Adolf Hitler. No signs. <laughs> don't smile, just stand there. Adolf, thank you. Great. Mark Adolf Hitler. Um, Marcus, uh, you get to be God the Son. So come with me. Come, come over here. You get to hang out with your father. Um, no hugs just yet. Hey, look at that. Uh, and you guys, there's, there's great stuff here. Um, and Caitlin, you get to be me and you and us. You're like humanity. Okay? So you stand here. You're you. Great. great. Thank you. Woo. So this is what it's saying. That um, we all have rejected God. All of us have turned our backs on him. And as you think about what is the epitome of someone who's rejected God, surely it's Adolf Hitler. Surely, I mean, if you were to take out a piece of paper with the number of times he'd rejected God on it and write that number down, here's one I prepared earlier, you'd have a lot there. It says some numbers and I just wrote lines because I couldn't write it all. But say this is a record of that, all the times he'd rejected God. There's a, there's a lot. He's super bad. Do you see that? That's bad. And you think, that guy, he deserves God's wrath because he's turned his back on God so many times. And you look up here at God, at the Father, and God, the Son, and I mean, look, these guys are perfect. They've, they've never, they've never, Jesus never rejected God the Father, always did his will. That's, that's up this end, that perfection. The question is, where do we fit? So often people think, well, we're pretty good people. We've done good. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't killed anyone. You know, where, where should... Where should Caitlin stand for us? And usually we kind of go, all right, somewhere in the middle, maybe a bit, come up this a bit, way a bit more, maybe a little bit towards Jesus. And what we say is, we fit just above, this is here, the pass mark, <laughs> right? That's good enough for God. But the thing is, God says the only thing that's good enough for Him is Jesus, perfection. Someone who's never turned their back on God, who's always been in right relationship. They've got nothing to apologize for, nothing to be forgiven for. And that means that you and me and Caitlin and all the rest of us stand before God as guilty. And there's either guilty or not guilty, so that means we need to take a walk, sister. <laughs> we are down here 
And you can imagine if each one of us had a piece of paper for the things that we've done wrong, how great that would be, how many things there would be on there that we need to stand before God and say, we deserve your right judgment. But here's what 1 Peter 3.18 says, that Christ died for sins once for all, that Jesus, when he died, did this. Come, come for a walk. Jesus, come down here. He's not really Jesus, just in case. <laughs> and when he died, he took the penalty for our sins. Imagine all of Adolf's. And then imagine a piece of paper with everyone's sin in it. Just stand this way in front of these guys. He took it all. Imagine how big that would be if it was a book, right? It'd be like this. There you go. That's a record of the number of times all humanity. And it says Christ died for sins once for all. He took the penalty that not just one person deserved like Adolf Hitler, but the whole world. Imagine for a moment that, that all the sins that everyone had ever done, all the punishment that we deserve from the beginning of time to the end of time was all concentrated down to one point in human history and poured out on one person. That's Jesus at the cross. He died in our place. He took the penalty for that. The righteous, the perfect one for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And what that meant was, as he did that, it means the Father turned his face away. If you can look that way. Awesome. Don't look back. Can't look at him. There's now a break in the relationship between the Father and the Son because Jesus took the penalty on himself. That's never happened in all eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries on the cross as he took the penalty that we deserve. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. But those last few words to bring us to God. Caitlin, come for a walk. Because of his death in our place, Caitlin gets to be in relationship with God, like us who trust in Jesus. We get to be in relationship with Him as Christ dies for us. Now, I don't know where Adolf Hitler stands. He could have repented on his deathbed. We don't know. They can just stand there looking like that. <laughs> but for anyone who comes to Christ who's trusted in Him, our sins are forgiven. We're in relationship with God. But it doesn't end more. It doesn't end there. There's more. There we go. Because it says that not only did Christ die, but He rose again. And what does that show? It shows that all the penalty for these sins was dealt with. And then he rose from the dead and gets to be back over here, over here, all the way over there, over there. It took three days in real life. <laughs> and, and then he's resurrected and given all power and authority, which shows it worked. Death was defeated. Christ rose from the dead. Peter says the good life, the good life is found in looking at what Jesus has done for us the righteous one for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And then his resurrection shows that he's returning as the judge and that he's one. That is why Christians are excited. That is why we trust Jesus. That is why we try and live in response to him because of what he has done. Why don't you give these guys a round of applause? Have a seat, guys. <clears throat> Friends, that is the heart of Christianity. And the fancy term for it is called penal substitutionary atonement. The penalty has been substituted onto someone else. Jesus died in my place. So I could be atoned, at one minute, I could be at one with God. Penal substitutionary atonement, that's what went on. Jesus took the penalty for us so that we could be declared right with God. That's, that's the kind of fancy term for it. The regular term is awesome. <laughs> How amazing is that? That you and I who deserve death for saying to God, look, no offense, God, but we just don't want you in our lives. We, we deserve death and judgment and hell. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus, who didn't deserve any of that, came and took the penalty for us. As Peter here talks about the good life, he, just, he can't do it in isolation from looking to the good one, Jesus. 
He brings life. He secures our inheritance, a life that does not end as we look to what Jesus did. It's like, why wouldn't you live this way in response to what He's done for you if you trust in Him? The good life is found in seeing your identity tied up with Jesus, in trusting Him and the life He brings us into. If you've not yet come to trust Jesus, if you've not yet put your life in His hands and said, look, I I want to make you my King, then I want to say the good life is impossible for you. For everything that you do, the achievements that you make, the treasures that you store up, they won't last. Death will be the end. Hear it from from Jesus' own lips in John 3.36. The one who believes the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see what Jesus has done? The wrath of God isn't poured out on us because we merely made a a wrong choice. We picked the wrong God among many. The wrath of God comes on us because we rejected the only way of being forgiven. The Son who died in our place. He is the only one who's died to pay the penalty for what we have done. So let me plead with you tonight. Jesus has offered you the best life ever. Life that does not end. Relationship with Him now, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. History points so strongly to the fact of who He is and what He's done. There are so many outside of the Bible references to who this guy is. I want to plead with you. Come back to your Creator. Come to the only way of salvation. Check Him out. Find out more. Do not keep living this life in first gear. Come to Jesus and see what is to offer that lasts forever. Trust Him. And for those of us who do trust Jesus, we need to recognize what the good life is. It's not just a Christianized version of these 16 good life 2.0 moments. It's entrusting ourselves to the future Jesus offers and living in light of that in the present. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness... You are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. The reality is, living the good life is living a hard life. Living a persecuted life. Living a life where people will will potentially bring fear into the world that you're in and potentially um, have you feeling uh, like you're intimidated from them. It's speaking up in a world that's very different from us. The good life is standing out for Jesus and trusting Him. And the reality is, as we do that, the world around us will hate us because we're living for a different king, a different master. But Peter says, if you trust in Jesus, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't give in. Don't fit in. Don't just go with the tide or tire of doing what is good. Because we're not living for the here and now. There is an inheritance that 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 will come. They can never perish, spoil or fade. Don't be intimidated by anyone or shrink back. I mean, what can they take from us? This life now, a couple more years in 80, when I'm standing at the end of a billion years, I'll be like, man, I wish I really had four more years on earth. No. The Apostle Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's his way of saying to live in this world is to live for Jesus despite the suffering, despite the way the world thinks, and point to Him. The way you live in this world will show if you really believe in the world to come. 
Instead, says Peter, regard Jesus Christ the Lord as holy, as set apart, as the one you will serve, and live for him. Live trusting him. Live like him. Peter doesn't just stop there. He then goes on to show us what that looks like. Verse 15, in your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Ready at any moment. We're to live in the world amongst suffering, giving the reason why it doesn't bother us so much. Why we're keen to keep serving others and we give up our rights for others because there's a kingdom to come and we want people to move into that. We're going to look weird to the world around us. As we give our time and our energy, our finances and our talents to the things that that aren't of this world, but of of, of seeing more people come to know Jesus, we're going to look weird. And as we do look weird, Peter tells us to be ready to suffer and to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. A number of years ago, when I was working in IT at a big architect's firm, um, I was looking for an opportunity to share um, more of who Jesus was with one of the guys that I work with. And I was chatting to my pastor at church on, on Sunday, going, oh, I just haven't had any opportunities to talk to him about Jesus. I've been working here for like three or four months, and it hasn't really come up. Like, he knows I'm a Christian, but there's been no conversations of any, kind of any, of any weight. And my pastor said to me, oh, have you prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel with him? I was like, No. Like, that's a good idea. Ask God to give me an opportunity. I mean, I'd be praying he'd bring him to know Jesus, but I should ask him to give him, me an opportunity. And so I remember going in uh, to work on the train on that next Monday and just praying, you know, Lord, please give me an opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. Anyway, at lunchtime, we went to lunch as we normally do. Um, it was a chicken schnitzel uh, and lettuce and chili kind of sandwich. I remember that. Sitting on this seat outside of work and we're just chatting and he turns to me and goes, Rowan, look, you're a pretty smart guy. You've got your own business. You're in this role here. Why does someone like you need to believe in Jesus? I'm like, you are kidding me. <laughs> like, I could drive a truck through that hole. This guy's just come on and asked, why do you believe in Jesus? And that's the moment that this verse kicked into gear for me. And I was like, I've got to tell him. I've got to give a reason for the hope that I believe. I want to give a reason for the hope that I believe. Now, I didn't go on to some massive argument. We don't need a four-year course in apologetics to be able to talk through what this hope that we have is. For those who trust in Jesus, we're like, our hope is that Jesus died in our place and rose again and he's taken my sin. It's just 1 Peter 3.18, open that up and read it. I believe Jesus really was a real dude who lived and died for me. He's dealt with my sin and he's offered me life forever and I think he's the king. And so I live for him. That's it. To put before the world why we want to live that way. And as we do this, Peter tells us we're to do it with a clear conscience. Now, sometimes I come across Christians that are just arrogant. In the way that they're explaining the gospel or explaining truths, they speak to the rest of the world as if the rest of the world's dumb. But what they miss out is that they were dumb too until God reached into their life and brought them to Jesus. It's not because of their smartness. But so often people can give the impression that they came to Jesus by their own wisdom. And if you just saw the world rationally as the way I do, you'd stop being stupid, you'd trust in Jesus, grow up and do it. Other times, people do dodgy stuff to try and see more kingdom benefit happen. I once knew of a businessman who did some shady deals uh, to kind of see some kingdom stuff go forward, but it backfired and then brought the news of Jesus into disrepute. 
No, in verse 16, Peter says, do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for evil. Some of us, we need to be more committed to prayerfully giving the reason for the hope that we have. We need, some of us need to speak up more and take those opportunities and stop being afraid of the world around us and think about the kingdom that we're living for. But others of us need to stop thinking we can argue people into the kingdom and treat people with respect. Stop being kind of these arrogant people that stand out going, look at how much I know, and think about gentleness and respect. As you walk away from a conversation you've had with someone, or as you're having the conversation with that person, maybe ask yourself, do they feel respected by me in this conversation? And if your answer is no, maybe go back to them and say, look, I'm sorry, I just I said some dumb stuff. I was incredibly arrogant in the way I spoke to you. That's just not on at all. I just wanted to apologize for that. I guess I get excited sometimes and carried away, and yeah, I'm, I'm just sorry. And express that, but still hold to what you believe. When I was at theological college, uh, we used to have this group of people that would, would go out once a week and do walk-up evangelism on the campus. We'd walk up to people on Sydney University campus, which is just nearby where our college was, and we'd just chat to people about God and ask them who you think Jesus is. And I remember one particular time, I was out there with another guy in my year at college. We're both kind of third-year college students. And we came across this guy who was like a philosophy major. And he had all these arguments. Now, we both studied philosophy as well, and so we had a bit. But I remember the conversation was just like I was chatting, and then I'd basically win the guy by, by running over him. I, I kind of just went, no, nope, you're wrong for these reasons. It was like, bah, like a big bulldozer's over the top of him. And I was kind of like, okay, I've won. And then when I kind of got to that point, he's like, yeah, my mate was like, oh, it's his turn. So he did the same. And it kind of was like, he's getting a chair and whacking the guy into the ground. And, just, and I'm like, oh, and then when he finished, I was like, no, no, and there's this thing you've missed as well. And then I went as well. And we just did this. As this guy kind of argued back, we absolutely demolished the argument. But we lost the guy. He just looked at us as two arrogant young guys. And really, I don't know, I really hope God brings him to himself now, but it won't be because of us, it'll be despite us. I was embarrassed and ashamed. As we look to live the good life, as we look to the example of, of Jesus' suffering, as we look to the, 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 the great hope that we have and speaking that hope in the world around us, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. And Peter gives us the example of the good life to look at. And that's point number three. We get the example of three things about Jesus that help us to live this good life in response to what He's given us. Number one, Christ's suffering. Number two, Christ's preaching. And number three, Christ's rising. We'll go through them. Christ's suffering, Christ's preaching, and Christ's rising. Well, let's have a look at, at Christ's suffering in 3 verse 18. We just showed you at the front what Jesus did. That, that He died in our place. But the reason Peter brings it up here in this passage is, is so we have Jesus suffering as an example of how we're to live in the world. Christ died for people like us, for people who've rejected God and, and want nothing to do with Him. He suffered, not because He was getting accolades on earth, but because of what was to come. And that's why verse 18 starts with a for. For Christ also suffered for sins. He's giving Jesus as the example also, we recognize that we don't follow a Savior who's disconnected from our trials, some kind of God in heaven that's just kind of moving pawn pieces around on earth. 
We follow a Savior who's been here and done what we could not do. He faced our death. He suffered the ultimate. He didn't give in. None of us knows what it's like to suffer to the end because we give in. But He never sinned. Jesus knows what it's like and He's done it for us. But then we get to the weird bit. The bit that everyone's kind of like, what is that talking about? The second half, verse 19. And I want to say this is about point two, Christ preaching. Have a look. We'll start at verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, this is Jesus, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Of course he did. Who in the past were disobedient. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, um, were saved through water. Now what is going on here? Like Peter says uh, a little later that um, Paul's writings are hard to understand. I'm like, dude, have you read yours? Like, what, 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 what happened? Now, if you want to switch off at all in this talk, now's the moment. Okay? I, I kid you not. If you just want to have a bit of a break and think, all right, because I'm going to show you kind of some nerdy stuff of why I think, what I think this is saying. I'll give you the point to come back in and be like, okay, here's what you reckon. But a good point to switch off, have a bit of a break. But there's a number of different views, okay? The first view of what's going on here was made famous by Origen uh, in the early church. And it's this, that after Jesus died on the cross... He descended to hell and preached to sinners who disobeyed from long ago. Those who were there in the days of Noah, they were in this, maybe not hell, but this um, waiting place, waiting for the final judgment. And Jesus went there and preached to them. And some take this verse and kind of change it to think through there's some sort of purgatory, some sort of place where people can do their time and they get a second chance. But there's no talk of a second chance. Uh, in Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And there's no second chance. But that is one of the views that's there, uh, and probably the least kind of viewed around. The second option is the one that's probably the most popular today, uh, and it says that um, the spirits in prison are not people. Uh, they're, they're angels, fallen angels. And as Jesus died on the cross, He then went and proclaimed His victory over death to these fallen angels in this prison place. Um, Genesis talks about these people as the Nephilim, uh, these kind of half angels, half not, these, these big people. And Jesus went there and declared victory. And that's what he's saying. He declared victory over the spiritual realm. That's, that's the, the second view. But the third option, and the one I think that's most likely, is one that Augustine came up with. Um, and it says this, that, that Jesus was speaking through Noah. When Noah, back in the time of the ark, was, was proclaiming um, that God's judgment was coming, that that was Jesus preaching to those who disobeyed God's word of judgment. We hear about God's word of judgment spoken of in the book of Jonah, where Jonah finally gets to Nineveh and says, God's going to burn you all, and they all repent, all of Nineveh. Well, here, you know, Noah's building an ark, he's building this structure. It's pretty obvious. You know, when people walk up, hey, Noah, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Like, you can't really hide an ark anywhere. And so there's a sense here where Noah would have gone, well, the world's going to rain. They're like, what's rain? They haven't seen rain yet. Water's going to come from the sky, right? And God is going to judge the world for turning their backs on Him. And people just didn't listen to Him, what Peter is saying. So when Noah spoke those words, that was Jesus speaking through Him to those people who are now, in the present time, in this waiting place, in prison, waiting for God's final judgment on the last day. Now, what makes me think that? A number of things. Um, 
when we talk about the spirits in prison, often, a few times, uh, in the Bible, four at least, uh, we hear of where people are called spirits, so it doesn't need to be a spiritual realm. Um, while they were stoning Stephen in Acts 7, he cried out, Lord, receive my spirit. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, it said, to hand over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. In a sense here, where the spirits don't need to be angels, they could be real people. Secondly, in 2 Peter, same guy who wrote it, 2 Peter 2.5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So look, 2 Peter 2.5, if God didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. See, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was preaching in some sense, the right way of living, trusting God's word to obey him. And then why do we think that Christ could have been preaching through Noah, the pre-incarnate God, the Son? Well, because Peter references it in 1 Peter 1. Look at verse 10, 1 Peter 1.10, it's on the screen. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you in the present time, searched carefully, investigated. They inquired into what time or circumstances, here it is, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, as the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, they were proclaiming what the Spirit of Christ within them was telling them to do, was testifying to. So Peter has this picture that Christ was working through others, and then he goes on to say it was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. So Christ is still doing it through others as well. So here we've got a picture of the pre-incarnate Jesus preaching through Noah to the people who rebelled and are now at this present time uh, in this prison, this waiting place, waiting for the final judgment. Now, now why on earth would Peter talk about this at this point? Yeah, time to wake up. It's like, hey guys, if you had a sleep, come back. Why would Peter talk about what went on with Noah? Well, because Peter is calling us to live in a world that doesn't believe in God, to live in that world and proclaim that judgment is coming. And to say that the solution to that judgment isn't a structure that was built in Noah's backyard, but a structure that the Roman centurions built on a cross, where Jesus died and rose again. And as we live in this world and point to Jesus, who took our place in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then the world around us is going to reject that. And so we're told to keep going, to keep trusting, because Christ is our example of that. Not only of suffering for us, but of working through others to proclaim the gospel, of giving a reason for the hope that they believe. Third reason that we have the example of Jesus is His resurrection. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and at the right hand and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, subject to Him. Just as Noah was saved through the waters of judgment and washed clean, so to speak, that brings up a thought for Peter in his mind of, of, of baptism, of what it is to be, become a Christian. Because I think baptism and becoming a Christian are synonymous here. In the New Testament, repent and be baptized, every one of you. That's what Peter says in Acts 2. And, and baptism and, and um, salvation are seen as one. And so he says here, if you have trusted in Christ, you've been washed through what Jesus has done by His death in your place. And what the resurrection of Jesus shows is that while Jesus' death was your death, 
his resurrection will be your resurrection. That Jesus now seated in the heavenly realms with, at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. As you live in a world where the world hates you and, and you're tempted to pull back and to fear and be insecure about your future, remember, Jesus is risen. For those who trust in Christ, that is your future as well. Jesus won. He died in our place and rose from the dead. Death did not win. And so resurrection is the great sign of victory that the inheritance will come to those who trust in Him because Jesus washed us clean through His death. Like Noah was washed clean in the baptism of the waters, so we were washed clean by through trusting in the one who was pinned to another structure. And so we have nothing to fear. Three examples of Jesus in how we need to live in the world around us. So then how do we do that? How do we live the good life? Living the good life today means looking to Jesus, entrusting myself to Him as an example, an example of suffering. He suffered in my place. So I can suffer because I'm living for something else. An example of speaking the truth, preaching through Noah to a world that rejects it. We can keep doing this because we trust God and we know He is truthful and good and will keep to His promises. As an example of what will happen to us if we trust Jesus. Resurrection. Life forever. We will be victorious. That's how we live the good life now. It's not easy. Oh, but it's good. About two years ago, when uh, movies were still a thing, you know when they used to produce new movies and you could actually watch them? Um, uh, about 2019, um, Sarah and I went to the movies and, and watched a, a new release movie called The Least of These. You can see the kind of... Um, the slide up there. Has anyone seen this movie at the movies, The Least of These? Oh, guys, you haven't lived. <laughs> right, the Least of These is actually a movie. It came out, we watched it in Event Cinema St. Luke's, mainstream movie, right? It's about an Australian ministry couple, uh, Graham and Gladys Staines, who, who went to live in India in the 1990s, up to the late 1990s, with their three kids to, to serve in leprosy clinics. They were Christians and they wanted to show the world around them that God loved them. They recognized that many of these places did not trust in Jesus. And really, it was illegal to point people to Jesus, but they just wanted to love the world around them and help them with this leprosy and people being healed. And to live as example of, as Christians and to speak when people ask them, why do you do this? And point to the reality of, of Jesus that they trusted. And they're a great example of, of laying down their life and serving others and pointing people to Jesus and giving a reason for the hope that they believe. And a number of people throughout India ended up converting to Christianity because of their love, because of the way that they had loved others and, and given the, the hope for why they believed. But some people in these communities that are amongst hated the idea that people were converting uh, to Christianity so much. They stirred up lots of trouble for the Staines family, significant trouble. Uh, they made it hard for the stains to be able to do their work. They tried to get them kicked out for doing this. They did all sorts of stuff to cause trouble. And one day, uh, Graham had driven to a remote location to one of the leprous colonies, which are away from the main population, to help the people that were there. Uh, he, he'd taken his two boys with him, who were um, 10 and 6 years old. They were in the car together. They went out to this place. They, they were serving these people here and caring for them. But people heard which colony they were going to. And decided that they'd turn up. And so as, as they went to bed that night, they slept in, in their car, in their four-wheel drive. People came and started banging on the car, saying, we don't want you here. And, and shaking the car. They started rocking it backwards and forwards and bashing it and getting more and more violent. They stayed inside because there's no way they'd want to get out. And the people weren't letting them out. 
And then those, the very people that they came to help and love, decided they'd had enough of this family and they'd put an end to it all. So they poured petrol all over the car and lit it and watched them burn. Graham and his, and his two sons burnt to death while they were trying to love these people and lead them to Jesus. This movie's got special significance to me because when I was a pastor at my last church, we actually interviewed Gladys, the wife. And she came to our church and talked to people about this whole incident and how she responded throughout this. And it stood out so clearly to me, the words that she said. She spoke of the forgiveness that she'd offered the people. She went back and stayed living in India with her, with her other daughter and, and, and tried to love the people that were around them, even though many people didn't want them there. She spoke about the lives that were transformed through her husband's and son's deaths. She spoke of the prayers and desires that those, the prayers for and her desires for those who killed her husband and her sons. She she talked about that she's praying for them to trust in Jesus. I'd want nothing but that. I'd want to see them die, but she's praying for them. And the thing that got me the most was her explanation of what her 13-year-old daughter said When the reporters came to her, the reporters asked, what do you think of your dad's murderers? You know what she said? I find it an honour that my dad was counted worthy to suffer for those that he loved. Friends, that is the good life, isn't it? That's what we're called to do. Not living life with a stiff upper lip and suffer for the sake of it, but having such a, a vivid and real picture of what Jesus has done for us and what an example He was for us and what a victory He has won, that we're willing to go to the ends of the earth or to our neighbour or to our colleagues or to our friend to invite them to church, to tell them the reason for the hope that we have, not fearing the world around us, not being intimidated by the world around us, because what can they take from us? Yes, our life. Oh, but eternity, that inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Right this very minute, friends, Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms with the angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. And he will come back and judge the living and the dead. And he has offered us life that lasts forever. Let me ask you tonight, do you believe that? Do you believe that reality that Peter has structured his life around, that Paul structured his life around, that the stain structured their life around? And if you do, Will you live like that? Will you live with Jesus as your ultimate hope? Will you give a reason for the hope that you believe? Will you invite your friends to hear the gospel at Explaining Christianity or Uni Church? Will you share the news of Jesus? Will you offer respect? Will you not try and take, take, take and live life in first gear, but live for eternity? Will you live the good life because Jesus has done it for you? As I've gone over this passage this week, the question that has hit me is this. Will I live the good life because of what Jesus has done? Will I live the good life for Jesus? Let me pray that God would capture us by the reality of who He is and help us to go into His world for His glory. Let's pray. Lord God, as we hear Your Word tonight, we see the reality of what you call us to, there's a sense in where it's scary to go into a world that doesn't think what we think, a world we know we will suffer in. We're 
are so thankful that you've shown us the inheritance that we have and helped us to see the example of Jesus who suffered for us so that we could be forgiven. Who proclaimed the gospel through Noah, even despite the world around laughing. And you've given us the example of Jesus, knowing that life beyond death is ours if we trust in him. Would you help us, Lord, to live the good life, trusting Jesus, pointing people to you, propelling us out into the world around so that we might point people to Jesus. Lord, use us in whatever way you see fit with all that we have and all that we are. Tonight, Lord, for those of us who have not yet trusted Jesus, would you show yourself to us? Would you draw people to yourself tonight, Lord, for those of us who want in, would you help us to accept your great gift of Jesus' death in our place? Help us to say no to living life in first gear and help us to put Jesus as our king and recognize that an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade is ours. If we just give up control and come to Jesus. Father God, we thank you so much. You've given us your word that by your spirit you convict us. Would you sustain us and send us into your world for your glory? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.